Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, I hope you're well. To get exclusive access to new vodcasts every week, videos which are packed with history, current affairs and a whole lot more, sign up to my Patreon site. It's called Neil Oliver on Patreon and it helps to support the making of this podcast. It would be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. The excitement of the possibility of finding even the tiniest fragment of a day long ago is intoxicating. In this podcast, we're coming ashore with a swashbuckling duke, determined to fight for what he considers to be rightly his, deposing his Catholic uncle James II and claiming the English crown. He's the eldest of King Charles II's brood of illegitimate children. He lands in Lyme Regis with a small band of soldiers and a cache of arms and begins stirring up the West Country malcontents and others of like mind, including the writer Daniel Defoe. Taking on and defeating the local militias, his force grows and grows to nearly 8,000 men. The Pitchfork Rebellion was on. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. podcast you took us to the beautifully haunting landscape of Lansdowne Hill to witness the heroism and cruelty of civil war. Where are we now? This week we're signing up to a rebellion led by a swaggering duke that would lead to the last battle of any note ever fought on English soil. Operating on a wing and a prayer, the Duke of Monmouth's uprising grew in size and power and became a real threat to the king. The two armies met once and once only in Somerset, here on the battlefield of Sedgemoor. We are in the county of Somerset, down in the deep southwest of England. Last uh, last time we were talking about Lansdowne Hill at Bath, uh, this one 
is uh, in Somerset, but once again, it's 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 a battlefield that you and I have in common. Yes. Because of two men in a trench, at Lansdowne Hill, we didn't actually excavate, but Sedgemoor Battlefield, we certainly did. On a side note, nothing to do with the battle, but do you remember the Bronze Age axe head we found there? I don't. I don't, Paul. Tell me. <laughs> remind me. One of the metal detector surveys found it. It was a beautifully simple design, nearly the size of a hand, with a good weight to it. It was pretty extraordinary. That's got that has fallen that has fallen down a crack in the floorboards of my memory. <laughs> you were focusing on musket balls and what we were there to do. <laughs> yeah, we were we were looking for something from the seventeenth century. <laughs> you know, Bronze Age. There you go, thousands of years ago. But the, the Sedgemoor battlefield that we're looking at relates to a battle that was fought on the 6th of July, 1685. Historians use terminology around a thing like this. They call it the last pitched battle fought on English soil. A pitched battle is basically one in which both sides know it's going to happen. They come together. (laughs) They come together in numbers, in a location. It's like a formal event. The last pitched battle on British soil. We'll come to that in the love letter to the British Isles. That's at Culloden, at the end of the Jacobite Rebellion in 1746. That was the last pitched battle fought on British soil. It was fought in Scotland, obviously, but this one, the Battle of Sedgemoor, is the last pitched battle on English soil. And it was all the fault, the consequences and the the death toll and, and the horror that followed, it all really comes down onto the shoulders of one James Scott, Duke of Monmouth. And he was the eldest of the many illegitimate, the bastard sons of King Charles II. King Charles did not leave an heir, a legitimate heir, which is to say he didn't leave any child that he had created with his uh, lawfully wedded wife, but he left plenty of children to his mistresses and James Scott Duke of Monmouth was one of those and in the June of 1685 he landed on a beach at Lyme Regis he came ashore with just 83 men and some armaments some musketry it sounds like a feeble beginning to an attempt to cause some trouble just 83 people and some armaments but there was a backstory to it. James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, he's the eldest of the many illegitimate children of King Charles II. King Charles II died in 1685. In the line of succession, Charles II had been followed by his brother, James II. James II was of the Catholic faith, although England was a Protestant country. James II was was Catholic by faith and James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, was Protestant and he decided that the time was right, that there was enough religious turmoil going on in England that he might have a crack at replacing James II, his own uncle, as king. And so in the June of 1685, he and a handful of people really, 83 men and some musketry, a few weapons, they landed on the beach at Lyme Regis. And it wasn't by accident that they chose that as their destination. The, the West Country of England was a 
what you might call a, a hotbed of, of religious dissent. And at that time, there was a, a big appetite in the West Country to replace Catholic James with a Protestant king. And James Scott, who was the eldest illegitimate child of Charles II, seemed to many to fit the bill. In 1680, five years previously, he had treated himself to what was almost a royal progress, as you would describe it, through the counties of the West Country. And he had been very uh, puffed up by the warm, ecstatic, enthusiastic welcome that he got there because he was Protestant and his version of the, of the Christian faith better suited many of those religious dissenters in the West Country. So he, he toured around the place being fated and being loved and worshipped almost. But he pushed his luck. Back in 1680, the would-be King James II was still just heir to the throne. And as such, he was the Duke of York. And James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, took to being very critical of James, his uncle, in the hearing of others. He even took a pop at Charles II, his own father. But one way or another, he fell from favour, pushed his luck too far and scarpered. So after his successful holiday in the West Country, he went to Europe and he joined up again with other rebellious Protestants, prominent Protestants on the continent, including Archibald Campbell, who was the first Marquess of Argyll. James Scott was actually in Holland in 1685 when word reached him that his father, Charles II, had died. And... No sooner had that happened than Argyll and others were telling him that really the English throne was rightfully his, that James II was uh, was less suitable. So what Argyll proposed was that he would raise an army in Scotland and that Monmouth should come to England and raise an army of his own there. And they would join up, have a successful rebellion, they would get James II off the throne and James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, would replace him as they saw it, the rightful Protestant king. It's a fascinating time to consider. As an archaeologist, I always think about, you know, you mentioned that bronze axe head, and I think in those terms a lot of the time. You know, I think about ancient prehistory. And for me, the 17th century feels like modern day to me. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, all, I'm endlessly fascinated by the fact that name-checked there are, are people who are like celebrities, you know, people who are still famous today. And amongst those in this context is Daniel Defoe, the famous author. Now, he was one of a handful of Protestants that when they heard that James Scott had landed in the West Country, they hightailed it out of London to join up with him. At that point in his life, Defoe was not yet an author. He was very much a kind of an opportunist, an entrepreneur, if you like, a chancer even. He had, among other attempts to make some money, he had been in the business of breeding civet cats. <laughs> who had, who had a, a, a gland that was of interest to the perfume trade. So he was a, a bit of a colourful character. And just the year before Monmouth arrived in, in the West Country, he had got himself married. He'd found a wealthy, if generally regarded as unattractive, heiress called Mary Tuffley. He was attracted to her money, if not to the lady in question. And because she had some family wealth, he was able to use that to, to clear his debts. But he, he was hardly happily married. So he was amongst a, you know, a relative handful of people that went out to the West Country and joined up with Monmouth. 
by that point, Monmouth had, had been enthusiastically welcomed in the West Country, but the people that had come to his side were poor. In the way of these things, I mean, over and over again, these, these pitched battles that were fought up and down the country for one reason or another, they always ended up, by and large, sweeping up into the ranks, the working poor, who were persuaded to drop their tools and leave their fields and modest homes and get driven off in, in one or other quixotic ad- adventure or another. And it was particularly the case in relation to the men that were swept up alongside the Duke of Monmouth, and they came armed with their agricultural implements. They were the Pitchfork Rebels. And the Monmouth Rebellion of 1685 is also called the Pitchfork Rebellion because of the, of the poor, but they came in their thousands. And eventually he had an army of, of something like 8,000. At the end of June, he proclaimed himself king. He actually had the audacity to say that he and not his uncle James was the rightful king. And so it was in that febrile atmosphere that Daniel Defoe and and others from other parts of the country arrived to take his part. They had some early success. The Pitchfork rebels, untrained and, and poorly armed though they were, when they turned up in numbers, they had a few successes at turning away local militia, companies of men notionally loyal to the king, to King James, but in any event, of inadequate numbers to stand in the face of the poorly armed rebels. And so there was a bit of a momentum building behind it. But by the time the likes of Defoe and others were in attendance, it was running out of steam. It all came to a head in a patchwork of farmland between the Somerset villages of Bridgewater and Western Zoyland. After just fielding pockets of militia, the royal army of King James had been able to pull itself properly together. By early July, there was a proper royal army in attendance. They were notionally commanded by Louis de Duras, uh, Earl of Feversham. But while he was the senior commander, the telling, the significant tactical moves would be made in the days ahead by one Major General John Churchill. Famous name. John Churchill would eventually, later in his career, he would come to proper glory with a victory at the Battle of Blenheim during the War of the Spanish Succession in the early part of the 18th century. He would be rewarded for that with the title of the Duke of Marlborough and he would be given the cash by a grateful monarch to build the palace at Blenheim. But those heady days were still ahead of him. But it was at Sedgemoor that Major General John Churchill, as he was then, first showed his capabilities, his talents as a, as a leader of men. So, the rebels are, are there. They're there en masse. They're still there in considerable numbers. But some of the momentum has gone out of it. Not least because King James had put the word out, had put up posters and, and spread the word that he would pardon anyone who would just drop their pitchfork and go home. Any rebel knew that were things to come to a head and were events to go badly and they were captured, it was treason. So they were facing either death on the battlefield or in defeat they would face execution for treason. So it was a tempting offer. Having been maybe carried away for a while, young men, the blood up at first, once word began to circulate that if they just stopped it now, they could disappear back to their lives and no more said about it. And so James Scott Duke of Monmouth began to lose numbers. They'd go to bed 
one night with so many soldiers and come morning, <laughs> there, were, there were a lot fewer as people drifted away to just go home to their former lives. Did they train their new raw recruits? They would be drilling them, training them. I mean, there, there was a backbone amongst the men that James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, had brought with him to Lyme Regis were soldiers. So there was the potential there to drill them and teach them basic battlefield tactics. But there's only so much that you can do with an untrained rabble in a matter of weeks on the move. I mean, it's hard enough just to keep them motivated, keep them moving, keep them fed, keep them watered, keep them sheltered. But yes, there would have been a certain amount of training involved. Perhaps a more sensible individual, maybe you might say a lesser man, might have just abandoned the whole enterprise before it came to the pitched battle. But James Scott was not of that sort. He was flamboyant and determined and ambitious, and he decided to, well, you might say, decided to roll the dice, to give it all he had left. And so as darkness fell on the evening and night of the 5th of July, he set out with his men for a, a night march in hopes of surprising the Royal Army, the Royalist Army. They hoped to cover the distance separating them, get to the Royalist camp, kind of a guerrilla-style attack on them. So they moved through the darkness, doing their best, hooves of horses bound in cloth to stop them rattling and all the, all the rest of the techniques that you might use to try and cover the sound of a large body of men on the move. But anyone who's familiar with that terrain, even today, knows that it's crisscrossed by deep drainage ditches that in that part of the world are called reens. The word is spelt like the River Rhine, but they pronounce it reen. That part of Somerset, it's low-lying and tends to flooding. Water tends to collect. There's often incidences of flooding. But even in the 17th century, there were serious attempts to get control of the water. So lots of deep drainage ditches deep enough to drown in, some of them far too big to jump, serious obstacles. And because of the darkness and because of the presence of the reens, the progress was painfully slow. And at some point, just before dawn, when their last chance was there, but still to be taken, someone fired a pistol. So a pistol shot rang out in the last hours of darkness and the jig was up. The element of surprise was lost. They were close enough to the Royal Army, but they weren't in position and they weren't, they weren't formed up. So the pistol shot woke up the Royal Army and then, and then uh, events began to move quickly. Those Royalist soldiers, properly trained, were able to get up and get at them in, in good order. They formed up on the battlefield at Sedgemoor and Major General John Churchill, the aforementioned leader of men, gave the orders and they charged across the field of Sedgemoor and clashed with the ill-formed, ill-disciplined rebel force and swept them before them. So as soon as battle was engaged, as soon as the events got underway, you've got a royalist force armed with muskets and the rest and properly trained, and they collide with the Pitchfork Rebellion, which is almost exclusively armed with agricultural implements, pitchforks and scythes, and for the most part those weapons are dropped and men run. James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, is amongst those who make a run for it. He's not taken on the field, but he runs and hides, but he's captured. He's captured within hours and dragged to London and brought before his uncle the king, and he begs for his life on his knees 
in front of his uncle the king, but it's to no avail. And on the 15th of July, just nine days later, on Tower Hill, he is executed. His head is parted from his body with the executioner's axe. So it was all over for him, but fate still awaited the rebels. And it's here really that the full horror of the Monmouth Rebellion, the Pitchfork Rebellion, comes into play. The survivors, and there were many, those that hadn't been cut down on the field, they were rounded up and they were brought in batches in front of kangaroo courts that were presided over by one Judge Jeffries. And they've gone down in history, gone down in local memory to this day as the bloody assizes. As many as 400 of them were sentenced to death and they were hanged or butchered or hung, drawn and quartered or dispatched in all manner of gruesome ways. And twice as many again, 800, maybe 1,000, were transported, which is to say they were put in chains and put aboard ships and sent off to the colonies where they would be worked to death as slaves on the plantations. Daniel Defoe obviously didn't die. (laughs) He managed to get away properly. He ran from the battlefield and he hid out in a church and legend has it that in the graveyard of the church he was hiding in, when he was passing his time, waiting on his moment to get all the way back to London, he saw a name on a gravestone and it was Robinson Crusoe. And the word is that he... uh, He made a note of that name. It caught his eye and it it stayed in his memory. Uh, So when he went on to write, (laughs) he he incorporated that name. He he also, at some point, he spent some time with a fellow rebel, a guy called Dr Henry Pittman. Now, this was in the years subsequently. Unlike Defoe, he didn't manage to escape. He was sentenced at the Bloody Assizes and sent off to a plantation in the Caribbean. But he escaped, like Papillon. He managed to get off the plantation and he got all the way to an island, the island of La Tortuga, off the coast of Venezuela. And he spent time there living an isolated life and then came all the way back to London. And then his path crossed with Daniel Defoe. So speculation is there that the combination of the name Robinson Crusoe, which obviously fired his imagination, and then hearing from someone who had spent time on an isolated, deserted island, gave Daniel Defoe all the the ingredients that he needed for what subsequently became a publishing success. So James, King James II, he remained on the throne. He'd had his victory, but it would only be three years later that he was deposed by what they called the Glorious Revolution of 1688, called Glorious because it was bloodless. When he was actually pushed off of the throne, there was negligible, almost no violence involved. Uh, So it goes down as the Glorious Revolution. So there was obviously a swell of opinion in the country, just that Monmouth chose the wrong moment. Yeah, you could say he was, well, was he the right man? He was illegitimate. He was a king's son. No one denies that. He was the son, the eldest son of King Charles II. And for many, including the rebels of the West Country, that was enough. And he was Protestant. He stood up for the Protestant side, the Protestant project. Uh, So that was another big tick in his favour. But the Monmouth Rebellion itself was disastrous. Tactically, it was just a disaster to raise 
ordinary poor folk, unarmed or, or just armed with whatever tools they had brought from the field, and in whatever numbers, to set them against a trained royal army with the armaments of the day was always surely going to end in disaster. It was glamorous for as long as it lasted. It had a momentum, it had a groundswell of support, but the moment came and went, and James Scott, at the end of the day, was completely outmanoeuvred, out-tacticked, out-fought and separated from his head. It's a strange place to visit, Sedgemoor. As someone born and raised in Scotland, in the vicinity of, of hills and mountains, I find Somerset quite a strange landscape, because to my eyes it's like a billiard table. It's, it's so flat to my eyes. And when you go to the battlefield of, of Sedgemoor, and there are, there are information boards there, it's easy to find. You can walk the very field where the fighting occurred, and it, it seems impossibly small, hemmed in by hedges, by ancient hedgerows, which would have been there on the day. It's largely untouched. The reens that caused so many problems are all about you. You can hear the water moving in them when you're in that landscape. And for me, I sometimes describe it as, for me, having a claustrophobic feel. The sky seems to press down because it's not held up by any mountain tops. The sky seems right on top of you in Somerset. And when you look at the field of Sedgemoor, it seems too small ever to have contained the drama that once unfolded there. And then, of course, thereabouts, folk memories last and stories are passed down through families and they still remember and mourn the bloody assizes. They still remember the cruelty. There are ancestors for many families who were either executed for their part in the rebellion or they were transported never to be seen again. And so there's a, you know, there's a sadness, there's a haunted feel. And if you're out there on the battlefield at Sedgemoor and the conditions are right and the light is low, the locals will tell you it's haunted, that ghosts of dead rebels walk the field. And it's, it's one of those locations in the landscape, in the landscape of Great Britain, where you think, well, if that's going to happen anywhere, it may well happen at Sedgemoor. When you did the archaeological survey of the battlefield, you were effectively trying to find evidence of an event that took place over a, a matter of hours. Minutes. That's a hard task. It is. Well, you and I both experienced directly how hard it is. When we were, it was back in the early 2000s, wasn't it? And 20 years ago, and battlefield archaeology, the survey and excavation of battlefields was still, still is really, a relatively young discipline. It was pioneered in the United States. There was, a, there was an excavation on the, on the site of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, Custer's Last Stand. And this idea of visiting a place where great drama had unfolded and trying to piece together the events using the techniques of archaeology was still something that was in the early stages of development. And by the time we got involved looking at British battlefields, we were developing techniques that are being perhaps more effectively deployed now, but, you know, you and I were there at the at the baby stages of battlefield archaeology in, in the British Isles. And, yeah, Sedgemoor was, was one of those that we had high hopes for it because we knew that there, there was musketry. There were royalist soldiers and others who were firing musket balls. And so by deploying metal detector survey, if we had found concentrations of musket balls, it would have tended to suggest that we had located the seat of fighting during that battle because apart from people hunting why else would there be large numbers of large concentrations of, of musket balls 
And we also knew that there were men there with armour, body armour. Obviously the rebels were armed with agricultural tools. The horses that were there on the battlefield were shod. So there's things that you can find. When you discover a musket ball on Sedgemoor Battlefield, it might be small, but it's an extraordinary find, isn't it? Well, it is because you know that it was, or you can be reasonably confident that it was fired on that day. So you think, here we are in the early part of the 6th of July, 1685. This was on that day. So you're finding forensic evidence of a moment. You know, you don't know whether that musket ball caused harm. If a musket ball goes through a fleshy part of someone's body without striking a bone on its way through, could have wounded, could have killed. That possibility is always there and there's there's just something very emotive, something very, well, it's just exciting to go looking for a day. Imagine you set yourself that, let's go look, let's go and look for the 6th of July, 1685 and see if we can find it. And when you turn up something as tiny and apparently insignificant as a musket ball, you think, you hold it in your hand and you think, wow, maybe nobody has touched this, held it in their hand since it was fumbled into the barrel of a musket by some excited royalist soldier facing down the Pitchfork Rebellion on that day in 1685. There's something very immediate about it. It fairly gives you the sensation that you've reached back in time, caught a day by the scruff of the neck and hauled it forward into the present so you could get a look at it. So when you stand on a battlefield like Sedgemoor, you time travel back to the events. Oh, all the time, yes. And I'll be the first to admit, it's, you know, it's my imagination. Uh, and, you know, good friend Tony Pollard, he was the, the other man in a trench. And, and we, we looked at a dozen battlefields over a period of a few years. And he's wired up exactly the same way. Tony, to this day, works at this, the Centre for Conflict Studies at Glasgow University, which still teaches people how to go about the business of, of researching and, and contemplating and, and studying conflict, battles, battlefields. And he and I were just helplessly excited by the whole notion. We started out together, we excavated the battlefield of Isandalwana in South Africa, in KwaZulu-Natal, which was the battle fought on the 22nd of January 1879. A British army clashed with the, a great Zulu force and was roundly defeated on the day. And Tony and I had managed to set up a project there and we, we went out, we took people with us and we, we went looking for bullets and, and the rest of the, the items that might have been and were dropped during that terrible bloody day. And for Tony, for me, for you, the excitement of the possibility of finding even the tiniest fragment of a day long ago is intoxicating. The couple who fought like cat and dog for years, sharing a monarchy for the last century, are finally brought together in 1707 by the pen and not the sword. A new prosperous beginning was promised. The independent parliaments of Scotland and England were united as one, and the bells of St Giles on Edinburgh's Royal Mile 
rang out with the tune Why Am I So Sad on This My Wedding Day. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucien, Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.